Hi, I'm Louise Mowbray, founder of Mowbray by Design and your host. Welcome to Lift, my conscious leadership podcast, Lead into the Future, today. I'm on a mission to bring you powerful insights and very human stories from leaders and entrepreneurs who are each, in their own way, contributing something noteworthy to shaping our world of work. Conscious conversations with people who are being conscious leaders and doing conscious business. My aim is to give you a personal lift to inspire you in your day-to-day business life. Make sure you subscribe now to never miss an episode. Today I'm talking to Tanner Methven, who's worked in the field of social innovation for the last 20 years, assisting private, public, and not-for-profit organizations to build a more environmentally conscious, socially just, and abundant world. Today, Tanner is a partner at Impact Amplifier, a director of Earth Capital, and sits on several boards. He originally hails from Los Angeles and moved to Cape Town in 1998, where he's now based. Impact Amplifier provides investment readiness and acceleration services to impact businesses. They also assist impact investors to source and invest into compelling opportunities, and they deliver supplier development and sustainability advisory services to corporations and public institutions across many African countries. I wanted to talk to Tanner to understand more about the social enterprise and impact investment industry, particularly in Africa. Tana, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute delight to have you here and um, very, very interested in what you're up to with Impact Amplifier and learning so much more today about the impact economy and how it actually works. I think a lot of us um, hear so much about impact funds, um, impact economy, but we many of us are not really entirely sure what that means and what that encompasses. Can you give us a broad brushstroke just to, to get us going on this? Sure. Happy to do that. And thanks for having me, Louise. I appreciate it. So uh, um, let's, let's start with, um, so the impact economy is uh, kind of as a catch-all is trying to define um, a new, you know, kind of trajectory of individuals and organizations that are thinking differently about what their role in society is from a traditional commercial perspective. So as you well know, um, you know, the way that society has been traditionally defined has been um, businesses focus on creating shareholder value. The public sector looks after the public interest and civil society fills in the gaps uh, where the public sector is not serving society and where the business, uh, business community is not serving society. So that as a model, right. uh, has existed for, you know, plus or minus 200 to 300 years. Um, however, it is, uh, and has become fundamentally dysfunctional. So as those three entities become more and more siloed, um, what is happening is that, um, people's, you know, kind of motivations for existing in the world become so, um, so focused and you don't allow for the real innovation to occur because expertise, uh, understanding of context, uh, varies dramatically. And when you ask someone only to think about one thing, they are, it's very difficult for them to be innovative in another. So, you know, globally, um, probably starting about 20 years ago, there has been a a movement and that movement has really been to disrupt that traditional system and to say, actually, 
the private sector uh, at its core can play a completely different role around creating social and ecological value. And so the impact economy has emerged to kind of be a holding space for both uh, entrepreneurs that are thinking differently about kind of, you know, social and environmental solutions. Um, and they're doing that in ways that are uh, in the main, either at a break-even position or being commercially successful, all the way to, you know, the kind of the other end of the business continuum, which is larger businesses that have functioned based on very traditional approaches, whether they're publicly traded or privately held. And they are disrupting, in many ways, the ways that they have done things traditionally and thinking and valuing um, something other than profit. So that impact that they're interested in creating sometimes is purely internal, and it can be you know, thinking differently about the value that they create for their employee base, uh, but often it's external as well. So what is the value they are creating in society aside from trading a high-quality good or service? So the impact economy is now this big, giant basket that's holding up those two ends of the continuum in the private sector and everything in between that ends up needing to service both sides of that market. Right. And Tana, just taking a look at big business for a moment and business as a force for good, would this be very much aligned with conscious capitalism's business as a force for good? Looking at one's impact on people, planet, profit, is that a similar sort of alignment in in terms of interest? (laughs) Yeah. And I think, so I think that the difference really is, so, you know, this is a a migration out of sustainability, you know, so sustainability and taking the kind of three P's into consideration, people profit planet, uh, moving that into kind of conscious capitalism. What does that actually mean? And the impact economy is really kind of just a continuum as part of that same movement. Um, as it relates to larger businesses. So I think that the, the difference really is, um, and it's it's small and it's kind of playing around the edges, which is how do you think about um, entrepreneurism? Um, so kind of being an entrepreneur inside of a large business, how do you think about social innovation inside of a large business? And that hasn't traditionally been the domain of, okay, we want to be more sustainable. Um, we want so you know, kind of consciousness, as you become conscious, you start thinking dramatically differently about how you go about your business practice. And I think the, um, you know, supply chains are a fantastic example. So as you, as a larger business and you start thinking, okay, in many large businesses, they may spend 70% of their costs maybe sitting in their supply chain. So how do you do your supply chain differently so that you are thinking about how do I create social value by who I'm actually buying from? How do I right. create environmental value by who I'm buying from? And that is a real migration from sustainability. Sustainability in a supply chain context would mainly be thinking about how do I reduce waste? Um, how do I, you know, kind of reduce energy? Uh, how do I do reduce water? But it's less about actually, okay, if I move from buying my pencils from a giant manufacturer to 20 small businesses, how am I creating social value and wealth creation for a whole other pool of people that otherwise wouldn't have had it? Um, right. And that's a totally different way of thinking than you would have traditionally been. So, so the major shift really, yeah, the major shift would be, there be ecosystem yeah. Yeah. thinking, systems thinking, rather than design thinking, solving into that sustainability issue, specifically for that business alone. Okay, and um, Tanner, you're actually based in Cape Town, but you're originally from the US, and you've been in Cape Town for some time now, haven't you? I have. So I've been living in Cape Town now for 21 years. 
Um, so mo- moved in uh, 1998 to Cape Town, um, but our business and and our practice at Impact Amplifier is very much static based. So you know we're trading in about ten different uh, Southern African countries, um, although Cape Town based. And I, I spend at least you know kind of a third of my time in Johannesburg because it's uh, where it's kind of the epicenter of so much of the rest of the continent. Um, so that's kind of where we need to be trading uh, a lot of our time. Which brings me to the other side of the, the, the continuum, which is your social impact um, entrepreneurs, I guess, mm-hmm. um, who are the ones who are designing or coming up with solutions that directly address the social issues that they are experiencing day to day. Perhaps tell us a little bit about that side of the continuum. Okay. So the, the vast majority, about, I would say about 70% of our work at Impact Amplifier is focused on supporting those social entrepreneurs to become investment ready. So social enterprises, particularly in the South African context and the African context in general, I mean, South Africa and Kenya are probably the most mature impact economies, uh, specifically related to social uh, enterprises. But, you know, those social enterprises are, they have seen uh, where the traditional systems of civil society or the public sector, generally speaking, have been have failed to deliver the goods and services that low-income people meet, need, um, and that that is across the continuum of affordable housing, access to energy, um, uh, clean water, uh, higher uh, quality education, higher quality healthcare. So it really is kind of looking at this basket of basic human needs and figuring out is there another way to do it. And so we work with businesses who have um, already gotten some kind of market traction, who have designed a solution, put that solution out into the marketplace, demonstrated that it works, and actually now are ready to scale. And the only way that they can scale is with an infusion of capital. So most of our work is around investment readiness. So it's getting that business ready to take on their first institutional investor. Um, and I think one of the things that's been really fascinating is that when we started trading, which was about you know seven years ago, um, the market just wasn't ready for what we were doing. Um, right, so yeah. our, our kind of underlying premise was that <clears throat> there's a bunch of pent up capital, which is kind of you know impact investors that's sitting in North America and Europe that is looking to find a home in Africa, and right. that home uh, would be with you know kind of innovative social enterprises that are designing, you know, extraordinarily new solutions to solve historically what seemed to be intractable problems. And if we could get those businesses ready, uh, then there would be a ready market for them. What we discovered was that there actually just weren't businesses around to get ready for investment. So we were in a market where, uh, which was in transition and it's still in transition. So what that meant was that the maturity of those investment opportunities, they were so few and far between. So people just hadn't been in the market long enough. They hadn't been trading long enough. They hadn't demonstrated that they actually had created a real solution. They were still in kind of experimental phase. And at the time, particularly in South Africa, what was happening was that you had uh, traditional civil society leaders, so people that are used to dealing with social, you know, social issues are trying to migrate into new business models, but they were very poor at creating commercial, you know, opportunities. And then you had the other side of the continuum, which was mid-career professionals being tired or kind of worn out with what they were doing and saying, actually, I want to get out of traditional business and actually I want to design a social solution. But they traditionally didn't understand 
social problems. Um, so you had failure on both sides of the continuum of who those new yeah. emerging entrepreneurs were. So it took quite a long time um, for entrepreneurs to be coming out organically into the ecosystem that actually had really figured things out uh, for whatever they were focused on. I mean, it's so in literally in the last three years, the amount of social innovation that's been going on um, in South Africa has been absolutely extraordinary. And that, that has been principally driven by a whole cadre of younger people. So, you know, when we started, I would say most people were kind of 40 to 60. And now most social enterprises are 25 to 35. Um, so, and these are, you know, people that are creating businesses to teach uh, math and science completely differently through robotics. These are people that are designing, you know, uh, applications to um, figure out new ways for specialist doctors to deal with primary care doctors uh, via, via the digital medium without, so kind of telemedicine, you know, solutions. Um, these are FinTech solutions that are providing, you know, uh, financial services to poor people that have never had access to them. Um, these are alternative, uh, housing constructs where you're taking the traditional RDP house and you're building, um, you know, kind of multi-story units in their backyard to get rid of the backyard dwellers. I mean, so that, you know, the solutions are just all absolutely all over the place. Um, and they mainly have emerged from people under the age of 40. So to me, right. that is right. makes me really, really hopeful about what kinds of innovations can emerge from South Africa and those that can get traction and really scale up and have a life, you know, outside of the country and, uh, you know, can move uh, into the rest of the continent and can even move off the continent. So for investors looking at um, Southern Africa or SADC, I, I guess having a look at these opportunities, they're not traditionally the type of types of opportunities that one might go, wow, that's a brilliant idea. They may seem pretty straight up and and basic. But for the you know the, the population of these countries, because of the systemic um, issues involved, they really are quite mind-blowing and it's actually taking it to a completely different level. My my big question there is how do these entrepreneurs, these social entrepreneurs find you? So I mean I think you know we're we are one of very few um, organizations that are focused particularly on this part of the growth cycle for an entrepreneur. So within a, an entrepreneur's life, they're coming up with an idea. Uh, that idea is manifesting into a good or service. They're getting out into the market. They're trying to get traction. They're testing it. And a lot of uh, support happens at that very early stage, both in terms of physical space, early stage, uh, stage C capital advice, um, just a range of different services. However, most of those entrepreneurs have a very hard time holding themselves up to actually get to a place where they have been able to be successful in the market. And so many ideas uh, and many, uh, you know, potentially um, life-changing solutions actually fall over because people don't have, you know, kind of the runway of three years to uh, just, you know, put bread on the table while they're trying to figure out their business model. So, um, we're one of the few organizations that focus actually on, they've made it through that stage and now they're actually ready to scale. So when you're looking for an organization that's focused on social enterprises and supporting social enterprises that also has 
access to capital, which is what our business does, is find, you know, find resources for people as a, in addition to actually making sure that they're ready for those resources. Um, we're actually, they're very few and far between. Um, so there's a lot of activity from an incubation standpoint, which is really much earlier stage, ideation stage in that entrepreneurial life cycle, but there's very little uh, focus on the space that we're in. And it, it requires a very particular expertise between bridging a deep and rich understanding of how social and environmental solutions occur, as well as how do you actually design an appropriate um, commercial solution to those things, and how do you actually solicit investment to support that. So people find us, you know, when people are looking for, I'm looking for, you know, uh, organizations that can support social enterprises. I'm looking for kind of who's doing this kind of work. I'm looking for, you know, people that are seeped in the impact economy. If they do a simple Google search, they will, and they're looking in Southern Africa, our name will come up. Fantastic. And Tana, um, of those businesses that do approach you, what, what percent would you take on board? So, I mean, one of the things that we've discovered from just our own business model after trading in this sector for a while is that it's very difficult for us to take one-on-one businesses on. Um, And the reason is because it'll typically take us 12 to 18 months to get a business ready for investment. And, And that's mainly because, you know, people need different things at different stages of their maturity. And they also... Uh, are growing at their own pace, you know? So, you know, that, that 12 to 18 months isn't necessarily everybody's working full time. It's what can that entrepreneur do when entrepreneur do when they can do it? And what can we do when we can do it? Um, so the process just takes a long time. So as a a kind of a commercial model for us, it was very difficult to string together a bunch of individual clients because they're small. So what we have pivoted to is looking for third parties that are actually interested in seeing a bunch of social innovations and social entrepreneurs emerge from the market. So they are our clients. So they pay us to support a set of businesses that they're interested in seeing emerge. Um, And so, you know, we're doing that with the South African Breweries Foundation. We're doing that with Google. Um, We're doing that with a a group called SAFE, which is funded by the Finnish government and our five other, you know, uh, static countries. So we have found our home Uh, more working with groups of entrepreneurs as opposed to a bunch of individual clients. Right. Just going back a little bit, um, Tana, in terms of the market itself, Mm. um, I was reading a report, I think it was this last week, looking at the whole social entrepreneur environment or the entrepreneurial environment in general in um, Southern Africa Mm -hmm. and how really all of the things that we might take for granted in other parts, the developed parts of the world, um, like being able to bootstrap your own business through friends and family, all of those sort of early stages that get people to a point where they might be become one of your clients as part of a, um, a, a bigger initiative that you've described. What, what is your view on the current state of the entrepreneur market in Southern Africa, and where do you see it going, and how, how, how long do you think it might take before we start seeing um, the equivalent or something similar in terms of um, more developed markets? Yeah. So, okay, so, so there are a lot of pieces to a, uh, the kind of social enterprise ecosystem that need to be in place in order to support its ability to thrive, okay? So, you need, um, and I'm just going to talk a few about a few of the parts, the, the kind of bigger parts, and then talk about 
where they may or may not be uh, in place and or failing and or thriving. So at, at the kind of early stage, you have to have support around, you know, you need physical space, you need, you know, mentors, um, and you need a bit of capital once you have a good idea. And sometimes that means you've got to build a prototype and whether that prototype is digital in nature or physical in nature. So you need organizations that can help you build things. You need manufacturers that can help you construct things. Uh, you need, you know, app developers. So you need that piece of the ecosystem to be in place in order to kind of get out of the gate. Right. Um, and then once you're out of the gate, then you need a different kind of support, which is typically some early stage soft capital, um, some other kinds of different kinds of mentoring and coaching. And that can last for quite a long time. And then you get to a place where you're actually ready for an institutional investor. Now, in order for that whole ecosystem to work and you get into, you get your first institutional round of investment, you grow, 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 grow. And then you're going to typically need another round of investment, which may also need to be more on the venture capital side as opposed to traditional finance institutions like banks. So what we found in South Africa is that there is a fair amount of activity around early stage funding and early stage ecosystem support, but then it falls over. And in places where it falls over are we don't have a mature angel network uh, environment. So it's very difficult to kind of find others that are prepared to take high risks in early stage ventures. Um, we also don't have an environment where, you know, friends, families, and others are in a position to kind of co-invest in early stage businesses. So, um, that's why I think, as I was saying earlier, that a lot of people now it's, you know, it's younger people because younger people can stay with parents and they are prepared to live with, you know, three other people. And, you know, so they're prepared to sacrifice their own personal economic gain for a certain period in their lives while they build this thing that they have dreamed about. Um, so it is, I think, in South Africa in particular, we're doing it really well at that super, super early stage. We're doing very poorly around kind of helping businesses emerge out of that early stage into right. the kind of middle where they can actually grow and prove that their business actually can gain traction and can actually have a successful commercial model. And then into the kind of, okay, now I've got a successful commercial model. Now I'm ready for really expansion another round of capital is required as well as, you know, kind of strategic support. So that, that kind of that stage, that last stage, that middle stage are not there. It's really the early right. stage that's there. So what that means is that uh, many, many, many businesses that could potentially be very successful don't actually get fully out of the gate. They kind of fall over. So that being said, I think, you know, those are kind of pillars in an ecosystem. Right. And and the the pillars didn't even exist at the first early stage. Right. So that kind of, you know, incubation, early stage funding that didn't even exist five years ago. So that's you know, like that's mushroomed out of nowhere because entrepreneurism, social entrepreneurism has become extraordinarily sexy for many, many different funders. So you've got a piling in, but they're all piling in in the same place. You know, right. so they're, they're all saying, oh, we're looking for the greatest new, you know, innovation and idea. And they want to take people at a super early stage, not understanding that actually you need to work with an entrepreneur three years if you're taking them at the very early stage before yeah. you can actually say, OK, you're done now with the six month program and hopefully you're going to now thrive. And we work right. with we work yeah. with a lot of incubators trying to help them kind of understand where they fit in an ecosystem. So, for example. If you decide we're going to focus on ed tech, okay, uh, so i.e. education solutions that are technology-driven, that are continent-based, right? Now, that ecosystem doesn't exist. So if you put yourself in the ecosystem, you've got to seed early-stage ideas, 
You've got to be able to fund those early stage ideas. You've got to be able to incubate them. You've then got to fund them again. You've got to accelerate them. And then you've got to get them ready for investment. And then you've got to go and find investors. So if you just step right. into one part of the ecosystem, you're, you, it's, it's impossible to do for everything because the yeah. ecosystem doesn't exist. So I think that's the, you know, kind of generally speaking, um, I'm very hopeful that in particular places like South Africa and Kenya, now Nigeria and Ghana are emerging, that the kind of construction of that ecosystem is happening. However, to me, the biggest constraint is that um, there aren't enough appropriate motivations for people to have ecosystem lenses in trying to design solutions. So who is it that's actually motivated to create an ecosystem solution? So actually looking at the ecosystem and system and saying there, there are 500 actors but there are two concentrated in two out of four places. And actually, how do we motivate and inspire activity in other parts of the ecosystem aside from letting it happen organically? So if you let it happen organically, it just is a slow, slow, slow yeah, drip. And the percentage, um, well, the chances of people actually getting getting to the point of being able to, to attract inward investment would be yeah. probably yeah. quite low, I would imagine. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, just, uh, just further on that point, Louise, I think, you know, for us, one of the things that we're most interested in is trying to harness the ecosystem as part of our role. So nice. understanding that we're part of the ecosystem, that we, you know, we're interacting with, you know, 50 businesses in a heavy handed way per annum um, in terms of working with them intensely over the course of a 12-month cycle, 18-month cycle. Um, so we're really seeing so much you know, of what's happening in South Africa from a social innovation standpoint. So we feel like we have a real fantastic bird's-eye view. So it being in that privileged position, what is our role in trying to assemble the ecosystem to actually work more efficiently? And how can we do that? So we're kind of in the process of trying to figure that out for ourselves. And it, you know, it comes from just making you know, sure that people have ways of understanding who else is doing something. So this is a, you know, another big challenge in the social innovation ecosystem is that you'll have someone in you know, Lalongwe in Malawi and someone in Johannesburg that are doing the exact same thing and trying to figure right. out a solution for the exact same thing. And they're both recreating the wheel because they actually have no way of learning from each other. Um, so there's gross inefficiencies around social solutions that are happening all over Africa because people are recreating the wheel over and over and over again. Isn't that typical of the, you know, the entrepreneurial space? I mean, I, when I worked in London and owned an executive search firm purely focused on .com, which mm. really ages me, yeah. <laughs> I, I purely worked with the, you know, the, the investment community, um, mostly with VCs. Yeah. And typically the ideas would be almost identical. Mm. And, you know, the debate was then, of course, around, you know, is it, you know, timing team? Is it the investors themselves? Is it their markets? Is it, you know, all of the other the other parts that, sh that come into it. Surely yeah. that's going to be a, a continuous issue because the problems and the social problems in Africa are quite similar in, in many ways. Yeah. When it gets to that, which team do you go with? Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, my, my view generally is that the, the, the social challenges that we're facing uh, as a continent are so big that yeah. we need hundreds and hundreds of solution providers um, and trying to, you know, kind of have the expectation that one group is going to figure out how to provide off the grid, affordable energy to everybody in Africa is delusional, right? So, yeah. but what we do right. need is we need, if you're going to think about an off grid solution where 
poor people are going to have to pay for that solution. What is the right model if they're rural? What is the right model if they're peri-urban? What is the right model if they're urban? What are the, what are the things you need to consider and think about? How do you actually business diffuse? So how do you take something that's worked someplace else and pull it into another market, another ecosystem? How do you partner? How do you collaborate? So I think there's, you know, um, if we don't continue to try to learn from each other around what's working and what isn't, we're going to continue to have this, you know, kind of uh, recreate the wheel issue. However, I do feel like there's massive amounts of territory for many businesses doing very similar things to be very successful. Absolutely. And one has to look at the system in which they are operating and Mm. the political influence around that and the social acceptability and all of the other things that come into how well a a solution actually does in the market. Mm. You've really sparked something in my imagination about your role in terms of actually creating the ecosystem. If it doesn't exist, we've got to create it. Mm -hmm. And when we look at it um, from a a broad perspective, creating an ecosystem that is, as you said, for the good of many different people coming into a market, I'm sure that once you start creating an ecosystem around a particular social solution uh, or social um, business, the knock-on effect on other businesses that feed into that same paradigm must must all be there. So, so the mm-hmm. development of that is exponential. Yeah. And there must be a point at which it um, it actually makes perfect sense. And I'm sure that you're constantly evolving it as you go, go along. Yeah. I, I have to take a step back, Tana, because what is it about this continent that um, really has you inspired? I mean, I think a lot of things. I mean, I think that... Um you know, the, the, I think in many places on the continent, people have been living within a public sector framework that has failed them on many levels. And because it has failed them, that has forced people into, uh, being, you know, kind of survivalist entrepreneurs and, and innovative around solutions for themselves. So what that has meant is that you've got an underpinning an underpinned underpinning of, uh, you know, kind of collective consciousness around how do we create solutions for ourselves? Uh, and because actually we're out here on our own and we've got to do it because nobody else is going to do it for us. Um, so what that has meant is that we have an extraordinary amount of, um, kind of untapped entrepreneurial talent and innovative talent. And that talent needs to find a home and needs to be channeled. And so I think so, you know, kind of this mix of extraordinary entrepreneurial talent that has not been harnessed to its nth degree. It's been harnessed mainly around surviving, not around thriving. And so moving that from, you know, kind of tapping into that talent in a place which uh, has so many social challenges and has so many environmental challenges, it is ripe for actually coming up with the solutions that are planetary, that are not just uh, you know, specific to local context. So I really feel like the the continent has got extraordinary potential for finding and creating solutions for itself. Um, so that's really what gets me excited. Absolutely. And Tanya, you, you talk about the last two, three years, things just popping in terms of um in terms of this this particular um element of the market. Why is that? Mm. <clears throat> um so this is a theory, and I don't know that it's actually the case because so where it's where we have observed it most has been South Africa because obviously we you know kind of live and trade in South Africa um, and we've seen it happen faster in South Africa than we have in other places. so I think 
a couple of things have happened. One has been that um, <clears throat> when, you know, kind of it's, a, I guess, a collection of uh, factors going all, on all at once, right? So a recognition from the public sector that small business and small business growth are critical to broader wealth creation and economic growth. So investments talking about uh, putting, you know, systems motivations in place, the private sector kind of following suit in many ways, but also kind of glomming onto a global movement of innovation, uh, a investment sector that's kind of felt like it has been left out of the good fun around creating social value and just creating uh, you know commercial value. Um, yeah. So I think it's been a confluence of factors. I think one of the most important has been early stage seed based support and funding. Because when that is put in place, what that does is it magnetizes people that, particularly young people that otherwise that are talented that otherwise would just go in traditional jobs. So they, you know, they see uh, okay, there's a support system in place, there's funding in place. So I understand, you know, uh, how my grandmother has traditionally gotten access to her medicine, and I actually I can figure out a better way to do that. Um, so they wouldn't have been inspired to try to create a solution if there wasn't a kind of a shared understanding that actually there is a home for you uh, with that kind of interest. So people would feel like, actually, the only choice I have is to actually get a job in the formal economy and carry on with what's been going on over the last 200 years. But so that, that, that kind of both funding as well as physical space, um, you know, mentoring, coaching at that super early stage, I think is motivated and crowded in a lot of uh, people that otherwise would not have make a, made that choice to be an entrepreneur. So I think that's been absolutely vital. And so then that's a kind of maturing of the early stage part. And now we just need to kind of move up the maturity ladder and pre- create different kinds of funding as well as other support systems in place for those entrepreneurs to kind of get out of that early stage and actually get into longer term growth uh, that they haven't been able to realize yet. So to me, it's kind of that, that series of confluence of things that has caused it all to happen. Yeah, so very much environment. I mean, for me, innovation and environment are inextricably, you know, tied. If the environment to um, prosper doesn't exist or the Mm. systems that support the environment to prosper don't exist, it's pretty much, you know, one takes a few faltering steps and it all falls apart and, you know, there's there's nothing to to reach for. Um, Tana, how long do you think it might take for for us to to shift this um, even further? Mm. to a point where it becomes more sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, as we were saying earlier, Louise, I think, you know, if you, if you look at the other end of the continuum and where larger businesses are thinking differently, and I think also, you know, South African businesses that are now starting to trade outside of South Africa has also made them think differently about their own business models. Um, so if you look at that end of the spectrum and, and at the early stage end of the spectrum, I think there's pressure on both sides. So, you know, if, if you ask me the kind of, you know, we've been trading for seven years and the rate of change that we've seen in three years has been extraordinary. So if that even, you know, even flattens the level of growth is still very high. Um, So I feel like, you know, I think we're probably in South Africa, I think we'll see a lot of material change over the last, over the next five years. I think in different parts of Africa, they have their own ecosystems and their own challenges. It'll just happen at different rates. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, the change is happening very, very fast uh, in the scheme of things. Very, very fast. Yeah. 
But a number, okay, hard to say. Hard to say. It's hard to say, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. I'm asking for the impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I don't have a question. And Tana, yeah, absolutely. And, and interest in terms of um, from developed countries, I know I get a lot of calls from friends either in the UK or the US or, or other countries in Europe saying, you know, if you come across interesting opportunities in Africa, please let me know. Hmm. And they're thinking of it from a social entrepreneurship or impact um, basis. Um, but as you so rightly explained in the beginning of our chat, you know, the environment into which they think they're investing doesn't in any way resemble anything that they're used to. Yeah. But the interest seems to be there. And I, I, I personally find that I get those calls quite a lot. Mm. Has, that, has that risen at the same sort of rate that our own development in our own markets has, has, has stepped up in the last few years? Um, I think South Africa is a bit of an aberration because... For many impact investors, it's considered too mature. Um, right. So it's a little bit of a you know kind of oxymoron because the you know the fact is that so much of the uh, entrepreneurial innovation, social innovation, is happening in South Africa. Yet many invest impact investors say South Africa is not uh, bad enough off. You know, it's not bad <laughs> enough to actually need yeah. you know our funding, which is of course nonsensical. Um, so, no, it hasn't kept pace. I think a couple of things have gone on. So, if you look at the impact investment as a category, it has, you know, uh, I think it's increased 3,000% in the last six years. So, its kind of rate of growth has been extraordinary. Um, if you look at what people, investment funds, say they want to invest in, about 30%, uh, Africa represents about 30% of that investment. But it's only taken about 15% of the capital. So there, there is an impact investment marketplace that is saying it wants African-based opportunities, but they're actually not putting their money uh, where they say their interests are. And that happens for a lot of reasons, right? So if you're a fund that's based outside of the continent and you're now trying to make an investment in the continent, you, you can never make one investment. So you have to be able to see, okay, if I make this one investment, there's going to be four or five others that actually I can follow on beyond that. And you cannot helicopter your way in to try to figure out what are you know, appropriate opportunities that fit your fund's mandate. So you really do have to kind of occupy a space. You really have to learn about the context, learn about the environment, and you've got to be prepared to make multiple investments over an extended period of time before you actually make one. And so I think that that's a big stumbling block for many funds because they're not based in the continent. So they're based in Europe and they're based in America. Um, so they're looking at things from afar and it's only those that kind of, you know, start dipping their toes because the funds mandate is, uh, is prepared to take more risks. Um, right. so it's just a, it's a slow process. It's a very slow process, but you know, some of that has been led by traditional foundations has been you know, led by, development finance institutions that are public sector led, which has mainly been Europe, European based. Um, so, you know, it hasn't kept up, um, but I think that it will catch up. I do believe that it will catch up. It just will take time. But, you know, again, like I said, South Africa is not uh, kind of in the, in the, in the normal in Africa. Mm. Um, but if you have the same kind of social innovation in, you know, Malawi or Botswana, you're much more likely to get an impact investor to fund you there as opposed to South Africa. Well, the model that you described in terms of impact amplifier, I know exactly where to send people now. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it, it's pretty interesting because I think that the, the risk once people actually look at 
Africa and the issues of getting to the point of, as you said, it's going to take so much more than people actually expect. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of people are put off by that commitment mm-hmm. overall. Yeah. Tana, if we look at um, the major organizations that are sus- shifting from a sustainability model into something that actually is much more um, in tune with what's going on in the market, I know that that's a big area for business, uh, of business for, for Impact Amplifier as well, actually helping those organizations to develop. Mm. Um, they're thinking around this and put the structures in place. Tell me more about that. Okay. So um, I think, you know, our most mature relationship uh, with a bigger business um, where we have done a lot of work is with Nando's. Um, Mm. So Nando's, uh, as, you know, most people know, is, you know, originated in South Africa, has migrated now to 32 countries around the world, uh, you know, over 1,300 restaurants around the world. I don't, I can't remember the exact number. It's changing all the time, but it's something like that. Um, And their core model in the way that they want to be doing business is equally valuing commercial success and social success. So they have really decided that they want to create as much social value as they do commercial value across four pillars. The one is around their employee base. Um, The second is around their supply chain. The third is with their communities where, where they're trading as a restaurant. And the fourth is with their customers. So they have been thinking systemically about, um, what does actual social value mean? You know, so in the restaurant business, you are primarily working, you know, know, they've got, you know, uh, tens of thousands of employees and those tens of thousands of employees are working at uh, a particular slice of the economic ecosystem. And so they're in, you know, uh, how they support those employees with, you know, substantially higher rates of pay by putting medical insurance in place, um, by, you know, providing transportation home late at night, uh, by providing savings funds. You know, those are ways that you try to build resilience for a population that is typically unresilient. Um, So that kind of focus on we're not just here to give someone a job and giving someone a job is enough, but it's recognizing that jobs at a certain slice of the economy are going to struggle to exist. And Mm -hmm. if they struggle because the market cannot afford to pay that person, you know, 50,000 rand a month uh, to work as a cashier in Nando's, how does Nando's actually play a role in building resilience for employee, its employee base that otherwise wouldn't exist? So they right. have been thinking in extraordinarily innovative ways around how they support their employee base, how they reconstruct their supply chain to actually work with smaller businesses, to work with small farmers to feed into their supply chains um, so that they create social value all the way down in everything that they do, uh, for me, has been really extraordinary to watch. So, and, that's, and that's a process of transformation. It's a process of change of saying, yeah. we have traditionally done it one way, but actually this is really important to us. So how do we reconstruct the way we do business in everything. And it's not CSI. It's not externalized. It is internalized at every level. Um, And now, you know, one of the things that everybody knows is that they're cheeky, they're passionate, they're fun. And in order to actually have any of those three values realized, you've got to create social value. There's no way to do that. How can it be fun if one person is wealthy and one person is poor in the exact same environment? It doesn't work, you know? So you you have to create an environment where everybody can thrive. 
And that's really what they're trying to do. So for me, I've been extraordinarily impressed with both their values, but also what they're willing to do and the chances that they're prepared to take. So I think for me, they're a great example of an African-based business that is thinking, you know, super, 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 super uh, far ahead for many, many, many American and European businesses in the way that they think about uh, what does it mean to create value as a business? Absolutely. What an amazing example to come out mm. of this market. Mm. Um, and Tana, you know, that just gives me such hope because looking around um, at the way, you know, the oceans, and I'm not talking blue oceans, I'm talking oceans yeah. of traditional style lumbering businesses. I, I heard a figure the other day that, um, you know, certainly within the next 10 years, 50% of our major listed global institutions around the world will disappear and they won't be replaced mm. by anything in that form. And mm. from that may sound horrendous for me it sounds hugely <laughs> encouraging yeah yeah absolutely which, absolutely which are, you know so so that's kind of interesting so so massive hope for organizations to steer which which often you know which is a big lumbering ship which can take time absolutely. but over a few short years one can realize massive change absolutely. systemic change that starts with a, a values base doesn't it yeah absolutely yeah and, i mean you know obviously you have to have the will um, yeah. you've got, and, and you know, it's hard work. It's hard work to change anything that's been around for a long time. That's been used to doing things a particular way. That's been used to valuing, you know, uh, price, uh, speed, uh, you know, uh, as the ways of, you know, kind of the thing, primary things that you value and, you know, making choices, I want to get it cheap and I want to get it fast and I want to get it at a high quality. Okay. Well, those are three extraordinary things to be looking at, but that's actually not all there is in the world. Um, so that's a complete mentality shift that people have to make. So it's hard. It's a, it's, it's a lot of hard work, but it can be done. And it requires that kind of entrepreneurism and it requires you know, leadership at the top and, you know, motivation from the bottom. And, and then hopefully uh, that kind of pushing from both sides of that continuum within an organization, you can make a lot of change and make it fast. Yeah, that, I think that that is the perfect message to leave mm. us with. Mm. Tana, I just want to end with one thing, and that would be if you had to give three bits of advice, one for the, the social entrepreneur who is looking to, to take things to the next level. The second would be for big business looking to evolve. And the third would be for investors who are looking at Africa, at social entrepreneurship in, in particular. Jeez, Louise, you're asking me a lot there. Uh, okay, I'll see, how, Jeez, I'll Louise, see if I can yes, do it quick, exactly. quick, quick, quickly in summary fashion. Um, well, you can, uh, yeah. you can take a few minutes. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think for the social entrepreneurs, I think, you know, for me, one of the biggest lessons is um, getting out uh, as fast as possible, as cheaply as possible, and testing the resonance of your solution. Um, and, and both from its ability to actually move the needle from an impact perspective and actually solve a problem, really solve a problem, uh, even if you're only partially solving a problem, but you're, you're, you're at least chipping away at that problem. Um, yeah. and, and very quickly figuring out, is there actually a commercial model or is there a commercial model at a certain scale? So. Yeah. Getting that figured out as fast as possible will allow uh, the, the the business to pivot uh, quickly and affordably. So too much time is spent on solutions that actually don't work socially and don't work commercially. So way, way, way too much time and money is spent um, before people recognize, actually, that's the wrong solution. 
or that solution will never be commercially successful. And actually, this is a solution that needs to have an NGO doing it and needs to live off of grant money. So I think nice. that's the kind of that's the core thing. It's it's quick. Uh, a lot of speed, a lot of change, a lot of pivoting, um, and try to land on the right model. And even if that model only works at a certain scale, at least you know you have the right model. So I think that's for for them. I think for larger businesses, um, I think, you know, for me, the the biggest issue is uh, the way that capitalism has worked uh, is not sustainable. All the evidence all around the world is that if we keep going with the traditional model of uh, extracting the most value and putting it into the hands of the few that that will not last. And we as a planet will implode. So the only way to disrupt that is to actually say, actually that no longer can be our value system. Our value system has to be much more diverse than that. We have got to think about how we create value internally for everybody that works for us and how we create value externally, not just by trading uh, a good quality product or service. That is not enough anymore. Um, and, uh, for, from an investor perspective, I would say, you know, uh, more patient capital is needed, uh, more long-term thinking. Um, people have to have, they cannot have a three year horizon. They have to have a 10 year horizon and, you know, patience, uh, but extraordinary value can be extracted out of the African market, both commercially and socially and ecologically. But, it has to be patient. These problems are big. They're big and they take a long time to fix. So a short-term lens just doesn't work. It really doesn't at any level. I hear you. Tana, thank you so much for your time. It's just been fantastic. I could talk to you for hours about this and, and, and clearly I have so much to learn, but today you've enlightened, I'm sure not only me, but but all of us just to touch. What I will be doing is posting um, some links where you know as to where people can find you easily. Um, at all okay. ends of the continuum. And for the second time, thank you, Tana. Pleasure, Louise. Great talking to you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Lyft. I'm delighted you're here. If you'd like to connect with Tana, head over to my website, mowbraybydesign.com, where you'll find the show notes and relevant links. Whilst you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the show in iTunes or any of your favorite platforms to never miss an episode. And if you're loving Lyft, I'd really appreciate a rating in iTunes or simply share with a friend who needs a Lyft. You can get in touch with me for coaching or speaking engagements by sending an email to louise at mowbraybydesign.com or click on the contact button on my site. Until next time, lift yourself, lift another.